Bullock was the king of Moab, and he quickly recognized what was happening. The Jewish nation had destroyed various powerful kingdoms, and he understood that he was next. He hires Bilaam for the job of cursing the Jews. Bilaam fails. Not only does he fail, quite the opposite. He curses, instead of cursing the Jews, and Bilaam gives a bracha. And then Bullock says, what have you done? I paid you to curse my enemies, and you've given them blessings. So Bilaam says, listen, there's nothing I could do that Hashem doesn't want me to do. If you'd like my advice, what I advise you to do is have the Benos Moab, have the daughters of Moab attempt to seduce the Jewish men. Their God hates iniquity, God hates immoral relations. And in fact, Moab conferred with the heads of these tribes, of various people, and the Benos Moab did what they could to seduce the Jewish men. And from that debacle came a tremendous, tremendous black spot in the Jewish nation's history. 24,000 men died in Namagefa, but it was at the point of the crisis that Zimri ben Salu, who was the one of the heads of Shevet Shimon, takes Kazuyotsur, takes a princess, and in front of any, everyone, lives with this Moabit princess, and it was clear that this was a tremendous, tremendous Chil Hashem, a tremendous disruption of everything that we had been doing for the past 39 years in the Midbar, and Pinchas sees what's happening, Pinchas goes in and literally at the risk of his life, kills the two of them, and with their dead bodies on his spear, he puts them on the ground when he puts them on the ground, the Magefa, the plague stops, and again 24,000 men had died but that was it, it was done and then, this week's Parsha begins with a very interesting Pasuk and Pasuk says, Pinchas ben Elozah ben Aaron HaKohen, Heshivis Hamasi Hashem says, Pinchas avenged my vengeance and he <coughs> took my vengeance and because of that I didn't have to destroy the Bnei Yisrael Lachain Emolo therefore state he will have my covenant of peace and the Surna says something very very interesting on that Pasuk and the Pasuk says that Hashem says he'll have my bris covenant of peace says the Surna because of that Pinchas lived for hundreds of years Pinchas didn't die a normal death at 120 or whenever a person would normally expect to die. He lived hundreds of years because it is bris shalom, because it is covenant of peace. And then the Surah explains, Kehefsed lo yikra, the destruction of the body only comes about because of the competition between the conflicts of different parts. And says the Surah Pinchas is granted this bris shalom, this bris of peace, and because he had peace, the normal conflict within the person wasn't there. And because of that, he le- le- lived hundreds of years. And that's how the Surah explains his bris shalom that Hashem gives to Pinchas. And the only problem with this Surah is that it's very difficult to understand. Because the Surah is not saying that Hashem gave Pinchas a special bracha, <coughs> gave marichas yomim, gave him long life. The Surah is saying because Hashem gave him peace, gave him tranquility, because of that, automatically he lived for hundreds of years. And again, as I just want to explain, because normally the hefsid, the destruction, the damage to the body only comes about because of conflicts within the person. Since he was granted peace, since he was granted utter shalom, and there was no conflict, and therefore he lived an extraordinarily long life. And this is a very interesting comment by the Swarno. The only difficulty with it is, it seems to argue with medical science. Meaning, we know that the human body was designed to last a certain amount of years. The human heart will beat. It will beat 80 million times in a person's lifetime, but eventually the heart wears out. Eventually the valves start leaking. Eventually the organs start to degenerate. The pancreas, the liver, they were only created to last a certain amount of years. 80 years, 90 years, but after that the body breaks down. And the Surah is saying... The, the only reason that happens is because of conflict, because of inner tension, but it's not true. The human body just does not have the capacity to live for hundreds of years. It wasn't designed that way. It's very difficult to understand this sorna. And to better understand this sorna, I'd like to share with you an interesting perspective on this very question. Heart attack and stroke are the two leading causes of death in the United States of America. Almost 50% of deaths per year are caused by heart attack and stroke. Now, heart attack and stroke, obviously, as the leading killers, have precursors and things that cause them. 
and a very interesting relationship exists between what we call hypertension and high blood pressure and heart attacks. But that's something that you and I are aware of, but that's something that science wasn't aware of. In the mid-1960s, a young cardiologist by the name of Herbert Benson noticed something very, very interesting. When his patients would take their blood pressure at home, it was invariably lower than when he would take their blood pressure in the office. And he found this with patient after patient. When he would take their blood pressure in his office, it was higher than when they had taken their own blood pressure at home. And he began thinking about it, and he came up with a theory. He called it the white coat theory. In those days, doctors wore white coats. When you go to the doctor, there's a certain tension, a certain nervousness. And because of that tension, that caused their blood pressure to rise. Now, I want you to understand something. At that point in time, it was known that high blood pressure was a major cause of heart attacks, of stroke, but no one knew what caused high blood pressure. There were theories, poor diet, lack of exercise, family disposition, but no one put the pieces together. Herbert Benson started analyzing, started studying, and he said there seems to be a correlation between stress, anxiety, tension, and high blood pressure. And he began studying it. He began studying it, and he found it to be rather, rather closely correlated. But because he was a doctor, a physician, he wanted to study it properly. He stopped his practice and went back to his alma mater. He had been a Harvard Medical School graduate, and he went back to Harvard, and he began studying the relationship between anxiety, stress, and high blood pressure. But he needed a criteria to measure. How do you determine if there is a measurable and predictable correlation between stress and heart attack, between stress and strokes. Here's what he did. At the time, there were two psychiatrists, Dr. Holmes and Dr. Richard Ray. They were psychiatrists at the University of Washington Medical School, and they had devised what they call a rating systems for stress in life. They interviewed hundreds of people, and they asked them to number 1 to 10 and what events they found to be the most stressful. And they went through all the events of life, divorce, being fired from a job, the death of a spouse, moving, going to jail, personal injury. And this is what they found after interviewing hundreds and hundreds of people. By far the most stressful event that a person would go through is the death of a spouse. That they rated 100 on their scale. And next down was divorce. Divorce was definitely a significant cause of tension of stress, but far less than the death of a spouse, and it rated at 73. And Herbert Benson then began studying the health effects in the year after a person either lost a spouse or was divorced. And this is what he found. The year after a person lost a spouse, the widow or widower were 10 times more likely to die than anyone else in their age group meaning within a year of losing their spouse, the remaining spouse was 10 times more likely to die than other people in their age group. Amongst divorced people, and within one year of divorce, the illness rate of a person who was divorced was 12 times higher than married people of the same age. And what Herbert Benson discovered was that there was a measurable and predictable correlation between stress and death and disease. And really his conclusion was that high blood pressure, which is now known as hypertension, was caused by exactly this, stress, anxiety, tension. And a person is under stress, there's an inner conflict, and there's that tension, and that causes high blood pressure, and this is the major cause of high blood pressure, the major cause of strokes and heart attack. But I want you to understand, it's not just heart attacks. <clears throat> he began studying and it's now become rather accepted in most medical societies that everything from allergic skin reactions to asthma to herpes, diabetes, dizziness, all types of pains, arthritis, are made much, much worse because of this thing. And as a matter of fact, at this point, almost two-thirds of doctors recommend some type of meditation, some type of relaxation technique, because it's become an accepted medical fact that tension, anxiety, is a damaging factor in your health. The House of Representatives in 1999 allocated $10 million for the study of this. Why? Because the, as 
In their words, the committee recognized that stress contributes to a host of medical conditions and current pharmaceutical and surgical approaches cannot adequately treat stress-related illness. And this became the great finding of Herbert Benson. Anxiety, stress causes many, many health issues, especially heart attack, stroke, but across the gamut. And ironically, this is something that the Sorno taught us over 500 years ago. You see, that's exactly what the Sorno says. The human body as we know it will only last 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, because we have conflicts, we have tensions, we have anxieties, we have worries. And this Nagda Sahapkim, the competing parts, the conflicts, that's what causes the degeneration of the body and the damage to the systems. Hashem says to Pinchas, you're given my covenant of peace because you'll have utter tranquility because of complete equanimity because you'll have peace there's not going to be conflict there's not going to be any of that inattention and therefore Pinchas lived for hundreds of years and this is a very very eye opening concept that the Surah is teaching us and it's something that has many many applications and let me share with you the most obvious the most obvious is there's a mitzvah that guards one's health. And if you understand that cigarette smoking is very, very bad for your health. Being overweight is very bad for your health. As much as those are damaging, anxiety, tension, nervousness is equally as bad and maybe even worse. And that alone is an important concept to know because what it means in plain, simple language is Anytime I get angry, furious, anytime I'm, oh, oh, fear, trepidation, I'm damaging my health. And that should be a tremendous motivation to work on bitachon, to work on amidos, and to stop and say, who runs the world, to step back and say, okay, this dread, this fear, maybe it's time for me to start working on my amuna. And this alone is an important concept, because again, it is a mitzvah to guard one's health, and when I understand that if I work on this area, I will live longer, have a better life, meaning not just my moods, not just my temperament, but my physical health will be greatly impacted by my nervousness, tension, anxiety, or the opposite. And that alone is a very important lesson. But I personally have much bigger fish to fry. Because there are many, many inner conflicts that have nothing to do with anxiety, and nothing to do with emotional conflicts as we normally think about them. And I'll explain to you what I mean. Have you ever heard of something called Jewish guilt? Jewish guilt. Jewish guilt. Now, if you're a student of the 60s, you know that guilt is bad. Guilt is throw it away. Throw away your inhibitions. Just give in. You have to become free of those shackles. I'd like to share with you, not only is guilt a powerful tool, it's one of the greatest tools that a human being was given. And I'll explain to you why. You see, guilt is a voice inside. A voice inside that tells you exactly what to do, when to do, and how to do it. Because when Hashem put you into this body, Hashem didn't just put you into the body without guides, without an approach. You, the one who thinks, the one who feels, were taken from under Hashem's throne of glory, and a part of you knows exactly what to do, when, and how. You see, I am in utter conflict. There's a part of me that's pure neshama, a part of me that's nefesh bahami, animal soul, and the I that thinks and made up of both, and each one pulls. But there is a voice within me that knows exactly what to do, and that voice inside me only wants to do what's good, what's right, what's proper. The problem is, I don't always listen to that voice. But I'd like to show you a few illustrations of that voice because it's far more common than we really think about. Let me share with you an interesting one. When my oldest daughter was about six years old, it was very easy to flush her out. She was a good kid, but every once in a while, as kids do, she would do something mischievous, something she shouldn't have done, but it was easy as pie to know. All my wife had to do was look her in the eye and say, Sir Leah, did you take a cookie from the cookie jar? Invariably, she would look down, get this kind of shy look on her, kind of blush, and she would say, yes, mommy, I did. At that age, she could not lie. 
And I want you to understand something. <clears throat> she very much wanted to, to a little girl, being able to take the cookie and not being caught was a very big deal. <clears throat> but there was a voice inside her that said, how could you lie? You can't say to mommy that you didn't take the cookie when you did. And she was transparent. Children are very, very easy to read. But as children grow up, <clears throat> something interesting happens. You see, it's not that that voice is no longer there, but that there's another voice. When a child's about 9 or 10 years old, and that voice inside says, you can't lie to mommy, but then there's another voice that says, yes, I can. And as the child matures, there are two voices, each becoming stronger, each becoming more prominent. And Baruch Hashem, my kids are honest, straight kids, but when she was 10, when the kids turned that age, all of a sudden it's no longer so easy to see through them, because again, at that age, they change, because then that voice becomes muted. Not that it's muted, but the other voice is stronger. But I'd like to share with you that voice inside remains with you throughout your life. I'll share with you a good example. They're no longer as popular as they used to be, but polygraph tests, lie detector tests, were considered a state-of-the-art. They were used in courts, they were used throughout industry, in any case, many years ago, I was a Rebbe in Yeshiva in Rochester, and there was some Genevas, there was some, apparently some fellows, were, somebody was stealing something, and they couldn't find who it was. They suspected somebody, they couldn't prove it, they asked this fellow to take a lie detector test. So he went down to a private eye, one of the Yeshivas went with him, and they hook him up to the monitors, and they ask some baseline questions. Baseline questions are just to, you know, just to determine what his baseline level of inner conflict is. At that point, they would ask some basic questions. <clears throat> Where do you live? How old are you? And because this was a private eye, wasn't Jewish, he asked an innocent enough question. He asked, do you have a girlfriend? The needle shot up, and the detective looked at the rabbi and said, I don't know about the stealing, but I think we've got an issue over here. I'd like to explain to you what was happening. A polygraph is a lie detector test that measures the pressure within your veins, within your arteries, because you see, when you want to say no, but you know yes, there's an inner conflict, and that conflict is measurable, and you can determine it, and you could see the needle going up and down based on it, and that's a very, very interesting fact. Because if you take a criminal, a man who spent decades doing nothing but lying, stealing, and cheating, and he's tied to a lie detector test, most of the time it's going to flush him out. Even though he's practiced the questions, and even though he said to himself, I'm just going to deny it, I'm just going to deny it. But when they asked him that question, where were you on the 15th of December, as he's saying the lie, there's a voice inside him that says, it's not true, but I want to say it. But it's not true, but I want to say it. It's not true. And there's a conflict. That conflict is measurable. That conflict shows itself, and that is the voice inside that all of us have, and that is my neshama that's telling me, that's not right, that's wrong. And by the way, and my Rebbe, the Rishiva Zatzal, said, what do you do? What do you do when you get to that moral dilemma? And you don't know what to do. You have a question. Now, obviously, if you could ask people, you ask a rov, yeah, but sometimes you can't. And sometimes you're going to have to call the shot on your own, and there is no guidance. What do you do? And the Rishiva said, I have a system that I guarantee will work every time. All you do, you close your eyes and ask yourself, what do I think is the right thing to do? <laughs> Stop. What do I think is the right thing to do? And if you listen carefully... And the first response is exactly the right thing. If you put away your agenda, put away the what-ifs, but I don't want to, and if I do it, what do I think is the right thing? Intuitively, instinctively, you'll know, because you have a part that was brought from under Hashem's throne of glory, and that part knows exactly what to do. And if you could train yourself to ignore the what-ifs, and the buts, and the I don't wants, and if you just train yourself to listen you'll know exactly what to do every day, all day, because you were born with a very clear GPS of the soul, and that GPS is your neshama, and because it knows exactly what to do when, and it will guide you as long as you listen to it. And now I'd like to share with you one of those very interesting phenomena of our world. 
A number of years ago, I was reading a novel. It was not a Jewish novel. And it was about a black fellow growing up in the South in the 1920s. And he described poverty. He says he was hungry morning, afternoon, and night. He never knew what it meant not to be hungry. He spent his entire youth hungry. In fact, he describes he was so hungry that one day he's walking to school and he saw a neighbor had a garden hose that was left out. And he turned on the spigot and he put the garden hose in his mouth and he drank and he drank and he drank and he filled his belly and he solved the hunger pangs. His stomach was filled and he no longer felt those hunger pangs and he continued walking to school until 20 minutes later when the water passed and he was more hungry than he was before. I believe that many, many people are drinking, trying to fill themselves when they're hungry. And what I mean by that is there's an inner emptiness, an inner vacuum within them. And they try to fill that with so many different things. They try to fill it with money and luxuries and comforts and maybe honor. But there's an inner hunger. An inner hunger, and if you don't fill that inner hunger, you will be miserable. That inner hunger is exactly what you were put on this earth to do. Hashem created us to grow and accomplish, to change the essence of me. And there is a very deep yearning within me to be a better person, to improve, to change my nidos, to learn better, to daven better, to become a better person. And if you meet those needs, there's an inner joy, there's a peace. But if you don't, there's a hunger. And you could try to fill it with so many things. You could try to fill it with everything imaginable, but you're never satisfied. And the odd part about being a human being is that voice inside will haunt you for your entire existence. Because it says to you these words, what are you doing? What are you wasting your time with? What do you mean wasting time? I'm making money and I'm famous and I'm no... What are you wasting your time with trinkets and... Tri- what, do you, what do you mean wasting time? Do- that voice will haunt you throughout your life. And here's the problem. You can hide from the voice, you can run from the voice, but you can't escape it. Because the voice is you. And when you put your head down on a pillow at night, and that emptiness remains and is as it always was. Now, if you're not sure that I'm right, try my little social experiment. I did it just tonight to make sure that it's still relevant, and lo and behold, it was. What's my social experiment? <clears throat> Google the word happiness. Just type in happiness into your search bar and see what comes up. So I just did this tonight, and here's what I found. 804 million results in 0.88 seconds. Meaning in less than a second, <clears throat> Google delivered to me 800 million websites selling happiness. Try our system, try our technique, try our approach. Why are there 800 million entries for the word happiness? The reason is because modern man is mighty unhappy. And this elusive thing called happiness and the pursuit of it is something that seems to be unmet. And that's rather odd. Because in the United States of America, and in most of Western civilization, we have arrived. We have freedom, opportunity, wealth. We have every liberty imaginable. All that mankind yearned for, for centuries, for millennia, all that man dreamt of was having a home that he could feel secure in, and being able to put bread on the table, and being able to live his life as he wants. We have arrived by every index Never in the course of history has there been this much wealth, opulence, abundance, and liberty available to all. And yet, it seems the one commodity that's missing is happiness. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize why. Because when you're distracted and running and doing and doing, you'll be very busy. And you'll have your eyes glued to that palm of your hand all day long as you scroll through Facebook and Instagram and you spend your life distracted and distracted. But guess what? When the day is over and you put your head on that pillow at night, there's an emptiness inside. There's a sense of, yeah, what am I doing? What am I accomplishing? What am I accomplishing? I'm busy. I'm, I'm doing. I'm very busy. I got this, this. You're doing nothing. Are you changing? Are you growing? What are you doing for others? 
what are you doing for your people? What are you doing to change? And unless you meet that voice, there's going to be an inner unhappiness. There's going to be a hunger, and you could try to fill it with every imaginable toy, every imaginable distraction, every imaginable form of entertainment. But you will be empty inside. And if you just look around our modern world, you see the most distracted, unhappy generation probably in the course of history. Never before has there been this much available, and never before has there been this much misery. And it's so odd, because we have cures for diseases, cures for pain, and we live in comfortable homes, we have air conditioning, we have heat, we have every imaginable comfort that generations ago couldn't even begin to envision or imagine, and yet we're not happy. And again, the reason is because unless you understand what happiness is, unless you understand what you need as a human being to be happy, you won't be happy. I mean, you'll find various solutions to being happiness. Happiness is a bag of potato chips. Happiness is knowing there's food somewhere you haven't tried. Anyone who says money can't buy happiness doesn't know where to shop. And you can find entire entire slogans, and some of them comical and some so not so comical, but often describing the way people really, really live. And unless you're going to grow and accomplish, unless you're going to set real goals, unless you're going to be able to answer to yourself, what did I do with my 24 hours? I woke up this morning, I'm now going to sleep, what have I done in that time? What am I, I was busy. What did you accomplish? And what did you bring for the world to come? And what changes have you brought in this world? And if you're not able to answer that question, there's an inner unhappiness. And again, you look around today, and I believe that's exactly what you see all over everywhere. I think the Sorno shares with us a tremendous insight. And that is, Hashem said to Pinchas, you're going to have a covenant of peace. And because of peace, says the Sorno, Pinchas lived hundreds of years. Why? Because it's only the conflict of the opposing parts. And it's only that conflict that causes the destruction to the body. And that's something that Herbert Benson discovered in the early 60s. And that is anxiety, tension, causes high blood pressure. But not just high blood pressure, which causes strokes and heart attack. And it causes so much destruction to the human body. Why? Because the conflict, the I want, I don't want, I do, I don't, nervousness, anxiety, tension, it's destructive to the body. And that, again, alone is just on a physical perspective, alone is important to recognize. It's important to stop. It's important, by the way, it's important to take vacations. I say this often, three, four times a year. You don't have to go to the Hilton. You don't have to go to some exotic place. A simple vacation, you go with your wife. If you're single, you go two, three days, four days longer if you can. You need breaks. You need to relax. You also need to exercise. You need time to be a human being. Because if you don't take the time to do that, you're going to cause damage to yourself. And again, just from a physical perspective, and just from a ushmartim esnafzoshechem, it's important to recognize that nervousness, tension, anxiety destroys my health, destroys my body. But again, the bigger picture issue here is why we were created and what we're doing here. Because there's going to be an inner conflict if you and you are not at peace, and then there won't be a conflict of tension and anxiety. And there'll be an inner conflict of that voice inside that says, what are you doing here? What are you accomplishing? And that voice is going to say, yuck. And you're going to say, what do you mean, yuck? Yuck, What are you wasting your time? What, are you do- what do you mean? I'm doing things. I'm very busy. And that tension is going to be there. Much like my daughter when she was six years old and took the cookie, she didn't want to say, yes, mommy, I did, but she couldn't help it because... That voice inside said, you can't lie to mommy. And that inner tension exists. It can be measured by a polygraph. It can be measured by a lie detector. And it's something that exists in the human being throughout his life. That voice is your neshama. Your GPS for the soul that guides you in exactly what to do when. As the Rishiva Zetzal said, if you want to know what to do in any moral dilemma, all you have to do is ask yourself, what do I think is the right thing to do? And if you ignore the buts, the what, what does it mean, what is it, just what do I think is the right thing to do, you'll know. How will you know? Because you are pre-programmed to do everything noble, great, and proper. And there's a part of you that only wants to share, only wants to care for others, only wants to serve Hashem properly, 
that part of you is that voice inside. And the problem that we face is that if you answer that voice, there's an inner peace, there's a happiness. But if you don't answer that voice, there's a conflict, an everlasting conflict that never leaves you. And you could try to fill that voice, and you could try to fill that void, but like that fellow who drank, filled his stomach to eliminate the hunger pangs, but drinking really doesn't satisfy you. And many, many people spend their life pursuing so many things, so many interests, and so many things, all to fill that emptiness. But guess what? It never works, because it's drinking when you're hungry, and it doesn't help. And I believe this sauna is a tremendous concept, because it lets us understand on a fundamental level, A, the greatness of a human, how we're created for tremendous accomplishments, and B, how ultimately to be happy. Because Hashem wants that. Hashem created us in a way that if we live our life as we're supposed to, we'll be happy in this world, accomplish what we're here for, and there'll be inner peace. But if you don't, all bets are off. You're going to be in conflict with yourself, constantly running against your grain, constantly living in utter misery because you're in battle with yourself. And I'd like to conclude with one last example, one last example of this very concept, and that is Henry Ford. Now, Henry Ford was a great businessman. Henry Ford was a captain of industry, and he was a tremendous inventor. He was the one who really, it was his idea, the assembly line was his gift to industry. And again, he was a great innovator, a great businessman, but he was a lousy human being. As a matter of fact, Henry Ford used to brag about the fact that he never did anything for anyone. He was proud of that, and that was what he prided himself on. In any case, one day Henry Ford is walking along a country road with a friend of his, and as the two of them are talking, they hear some yelps, some cries off in the distance, And Henry Ford walks over to see, and he finds a dog who got caught in a barbed wire fence, and the dog couldn't get out. So Henry Ford walks to the side of the road, he goes off to the barbed wire, gently pries the barbed wire out of the dog's skin, and the dog runs off, and Henry Ford goes back to his friend, they continue walking. At that point, his friend turns to him and says, Henry, I thought you were the guy who says you never do anything for anyone but yourself. Why'd you do that? Henry Ford looked at him and said, That was for me. The dog's cries were bothering me. I couldn't help but do it. Now, that's an interesting example of a person whose soul has shriveled up to the size of a prune. But even Henry Ford could not help but feel the pain, couldn't help but try to do something, because that's the way Hashem created him. Because any human being, no matter how far off the path he goes, still has a neshama, still has a part of him that cries out for pain of others, still feels others' pain, still wants to grow, still wants to accomplish, and even he could not destroy it. And that is a tremendous lesson, A, for our physical health, but in a much bigger picture for our emotional health, our well-being, for the reason we're created. We're given this GPS. If we listen to it, we grow and accomplish, happy in this world, and accomplish what we put on the planet for. And now, I'd like to open the floor for questions. I didn't speak too long this time. I'm happy because other times I have uh, didn't leave enough time for questions, so I'm glad I have enough time. So I'm going to open the floor for questions. If you'd like, please feel free to raise your hand. If you're a little shy, you could type the question into the Q&A, and I try to take it. Also, at any time, please feel free uh, to email questions into Rebbe, R-E-B-B-E at theshmooze.com. You can email questions in there. Just put questions on the schmooze on the subject line, so I know to look for that. But anytime you can send questions. Um, okay, let's open the floor. Avram, you have the floor. I think you do. Good evening. Good evening. Hi. Um, gotcha. um, it's an interesting question is that one, the one thing I have a, a conflict with is on the one hand, we know when it comes to big messages Hashem sends us, so we say, oh, we're not living, and we can't know exactly what Hashem is sending to us. At the same time, we're being told that you know we, we have an internal GPS, so we can figure out what Hashem's, you know, how, what, what path Hashem wants us to take. But if we can't figure out if a big tragedy happens, uh, what Hashem's mess exactly what Hashem's trying to tell us, then how can we figure out the small paths that we're supposed to be taking? And if we can figure out the small paths, then maybe we, why can't we figure out at least on some level right. what kind of message 
uh, the big things, what the, what the, at least for each individual, what they're. Okay, good question, Avram, good question. Okay, so let's, let's focus on that for a minute. A building collapses in Surfside, Florida. Do I know why Hashem did it? I don't know. It's a tragedy. I have to feel the pain. I have to be with Him. Do I know why? I don't know why. On that level, if I were a prophet, if I were a novi, I could know, but I certainly am not, and I can't know. And what we're talking about over here is on a much more personal level, me and my life. Should I do this or should I not do this? Is this the path I should take or is that the path? For that, I have an internal GPS. I know exactly what I should do because my neshama has been pre-programmed with everything I need to know to do exactly what I should be doing. So it's true in the global sense. And when it comes to the world events and understanding history, it's true, I'm not a novi and I can't know. But when it comes to my own life, to choices that I'm supposed to make, I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. The difficulty we get into is, I don't want to. I know I should do this, but if I do this, it means, oh. And if I do that, it means, oh. And it's the consequences that I don't want, and the price I have to pay, and that's the problem, because we create a lot of confusion, because since I know, if I do this, I'm not going to be able to do what I want, so I try to push the voice down, I try to ignore it, and I try to say, I don't know what to do, I don't know, I'm not sure. I do know. The problem is I'm squashing that other voice, I'm ignoring it because I don't want to hear it. If I put away my agenda, and put away the what-ifs, and just ask myself, what is the right thing to do, I know, instinctively, intuitively, because again, that's the neshama that Hashem gave to every Jew. Again, you ask, it's always very important to ask Eitzah, and my Rebbe Roshiv used to say, ask people younger than you, ask people older than you, certainly you should have a rov, and certainly have people you ask regular questions to, but there will be many, many questions that you will not be able to answer, you will not be able to ask people, and have to answer it yourself, and the answer is there if you just ask yourself, what do I think is the right thing? Okay, everyone, thank you. I hope that answered the question. Did, did it answer the question, actually? Uh, uh, mostly. Mostly. Um, mostly is pretty good, by the way. Yeah, well, actually, well, let's say I get impacted from the tragedy of some sort. Isn't there a certain amount of the voice telling me that I should take a lesson, at least uh, uh, change myself to from that big tragedy? Right. And therefore, exactly. so then how do I... So then if I'm not knowing to figure out What's going on? Why Hashem did it? How can I? No, again, I'm not a no, right. I'm not a to know why Hashem brought this at this time to these people in this situation, but I am supposed to wake up. I am supposed to listen. We, we all got stuff to work on. If you don't have stuff to work on, I'll ask your wife. I'll ask anybody. No, I'm kidding. But you know, what I'm saying we we all have stuff to work on. So when something like that happens, you're supposed to turn inside. Supposed to work on yourself. Supposed to take a lesson exactly the meaning of it in the global sense, exactly why Hashem did it and what it means, I don't know. But that's, again, that's not that's not, not my job. My name was Yeshaya Novi, my name was Elio Novi, that would be my job, but that's not, I work for a not-for-profit institution, so, you know, it's not my job. My job is to just deal with the issues of my life, and in that, I have a GPS, I know exactly what to do. All right, everyone, thank you. Okay, good. Thank you. Okay, if you have questions, please feel free to raise your hand. Uh, oh, Edward, one second. Edward, we haven't heard from you in a long time. Shalom Aleichem. How are you? Yeah, hi, Rabbi. Yes, I missed a few schmoozes because you moved to Wednesday. I, I know, big move. I know, big move. We'll move back, Mitzvah yeah. We'll move back. I hope it's Thursday so afternoon. That's I'm here. <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm in the school coaching one of my rabbis. Okay. Table tennis. Ah, because Wednesday we are supposed to take a lesson, so you know I'm combining, wasting <laughs> uh, time, coaching Rebbe and talking to you. So uh, my question, some observation, and the question about uh, you got my envelope and you asked me where is the opera tickets. If you remember, the envelope <laughs> was from the Metropolitan Opera, right? You asked if tickets fell off. So yes. here's my observation. So once a uh, couple kosher guys in San Shul asking me tickets for some. Uh, Bible story, Samson and Dalila, Moses or Salome, I don't remember. So I got them two tickets. They've never been in opera, so they, <laughs> I went with my wife, he went with his wife. And I know the kosher guy not, not supposed to be in the opera because, because the voice is very seductive, right? Okay. 
Yeah, but uh, the opera singers, uh, women, they are not very attractive, by the way. <laughs> some overweight, some are chubby, some are right. just not my face. But, uh, okay, in this case, it was very beautiful woman from Ukraine, Oksana Dika. So you know what happened? The kosher guy in the middle of the performance jumped on the stage and stopped, stopped fornicating with her. Uh, <laughs> okay, so here is my yeah. question. When our stage said, <laughs> the woman's voice is so seductive, are they a bunch of horny teenagers, or it just... <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, let, let me put your question into, into terms that, that I could understand. Okay, so <clears throat> your question is, it doesn't seem to be very... The Gemara says, Kol Isha Erva. A woman's voice is considered, uh, let's call it seductive, and it doesn't seem to be true. What does it mean? All right, so let me be very, very candid. We live in a hyper-sexualized era. Things that we're exposed to on a regular basis today are so so absurd, so beyond the norm. If you go back in history 200 years ago, 400 years ago, no one ever did, not normal people, you know, you can find me the Greeks were somewhat, but at least in their home, their own wives, they didn't run around like, I'm t- in the course of history, I don't believe Stom and Amora were anywhere near where we're at in terms of what's happened. So in any case, the point is as follows. On a regular basis, a person is bombarded with things he's not supposed to see, things he's not supposed to hear. And you're right, there's a certain point where a person could become almost, I wouldn't say immune, but a person becomes deadened and and no longer has the impact. And in fact, a lot of people have problems because of that in their marriage because their eyes are constantly outside and they're no longer attracted to their own wife, etc., without getting involved in details. But the point being, you're right, it's a major problem. And it could be now that we don't even understand it because we're so hypersexualized, so bombarded by things on a regular basis that we become deadened. But Chazal understood the human being far better than we did. They were masters of human nature. And when Chazal say that, let's understand they were right. It's not that we're smarter than them, not that we're more sophisticated, quite the opposite was so depraved, so involved in this unfortunate debacle of what the world has become that we no longer even can recognize their words. But, again, we trust them and accept them. I hope that helps a little bit, Edward, and we'll see you. I'm going to look at those uh, articles you sent. Thank you very much, and good hearing from you. Okay, good night. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and please feel free to raise your hand if you have a question, uh, or you can type them in. Um, Please feel free. You could raise your hand. If you're shy, again, you could type it. Okay, Ronnie, you have the floor. Hi, Rabbi. How are you? Good. Hi. Shalom Aleichem. Uh, so I had a question. You said vacations are, are very good and very normal. No, no. You're... I'm sorry to interrupt. No. They're vital. Vital. Vital, vital means, you know what the word vital means? Life dependence. Vital is an expression in medicine that means it's your life depends on it. Without meaning, they're really. I, I don't consider vacations a a luxury. You see, the human being requires certain things. If you don't breathe, you're going to die. If you don't eat, you're going to die. So, but I could work without taking vacations. Yeah, but you know what happens? You start running on empty, and before you know it, you're just not the same human being. You're just an, an empty shell. I'm sorry, but without my getting too. <laughs> worked up about this. Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, so let's say your in-laws, uh, they, they invite you on, on to a vacation with them, and they're taking their kids, and they say, come along, we're renting a <laughs> And uh, my, my wife, let's say, she really wants to go, and um, I feel like it, it may not be so much of a vacation. So what's, what's the correct way to go about that? Okay, so there are two questions there. <laughs> let's deal with the first one. The first one, is that a vacation? The answer is no. Let's start with the following. Vacation... If you're married, a vacation with your kids is not a vacation. It's very important to do family trips. I'm a big advocate for taking your kids into places. It's a great idea. That's not called a vacation. A vacation is you and your wife alone. That's called a vacation. With the kids, again, a very important, very good idea, uh, but not a vacation. Now, with your in-laws, that's already <laughs> that brings a whole other uh, level of complexity to the question. So... Whether that's a vacation, the answer is no. Should you go, I assume yes, and do the best you can, and, and you should enjoy it and, and try to bond. It's, it's a great time to bond as a family. It's a great time to spend time together. 
again, it doesn't replace a vacation. It's not in place of, but it's also something very important. But again, you see, the key to vacations are, they don't have to be to Hawaii for two weeks. You could take a place, I'd say this all the time, two, three nights in a, in a hotel. It doesn't have to be the fanciest place in the world, but you just, it's a break. You get away, you do things together as a couple, you just, it's a break from the routine. That, and that kind of thing I think most of us can do. When we think about vacations, we think about a, a luxury yacht to, to Alaska, I'm going to fly the, to, to the Alps. That, you're right, most of us can't either afford it, whether it be financially or time-wise, but I think pretty much all of us can afford a two, three-day break, and we just go away. If you're married, you go with your wife, not you go alone, but the point is you go to recharge your batteries, to take a break, because that's what we human beings need to remain emotionally healthy and productive. Yeah, thank you. Okay. I just have one more question. You have please. time for another question? Yeah, please, go ahead. Okay, so uh, so my wife, she likes to speak in, in, in schools and organizations for girls, and she, she likes to, uh, to give shurim. And uh, sometimes I, I feel that that may take away from, from the time that she can invest in, into the family, whether it be at home or, or maybe um, get a part-time job somewhere. Is it right for me to say, like, lessen the cube, or should I let her follow her, her passion? Or, and, uh, wow. Wow. You're asking me that question. Uh, and does she know you're asking me that question? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's listening. She's listening. <laughs> so <clears throat> that's what I'm saying. For you to ask a question, I don't like it. If she'd asked me the question, I, I would gladly answer it. Um, are you asking for her? Yeah. Okay. It's, it's both of our questions, she's saying. Uh, no, uh, so you, I'm not going to answer. If it's no. her, if her, I'll answer. Is it her? Okay. Is she in the background saying yes? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Then I'll answer her question. <clears throat> the answer to the question is your first priority. Honestly, your first priority is your family. <clears throat> it's your family first. That means your husband, your kids, that's your first priority. And when you've done that, and you really can, then you can turn outward. By the way, when we, when my kids were little, I, I once said something interesting to my wife. Um, I asked her to stop. I told her, I don't want you baking challah. I don't want you baking challah. And it's a very interesting thing, thing for me to ask my wife, because Allah and Shulchan Aruch, and Ramos says it's a minog to bake challah every Shabbos, and I asked my wife not to bake challah. I said, why? Our kids are little. What they need is for you to be on the floor with them, playing with them, being with them. That's what they need. They need a nurturer, they need a caregiver, they need their mother. If we bake challah, don't bake challah, you buy from the bakery, it's, it doesn't really matter. But what your kids need is attention, they need that devotion. So what I say is your first obligation is to your family. And that means to say your kids, your husband. Now, if there's time afterwards, or if you have, you know, people need outlets and they feel fulfilled, that's a fine thing to do. But again, it shouldn't take away from your first priority. Now, let's not make any mistake. Many people are more effective if they have things they do outside the house as well. Some women can stay home all day. Some can't. So you really have to know your nature. And if you feel you need to be out of the house, and assuming that your kids are at the age where they don't need you all the time, or you have some, you know, there's some way for you to have them being taken care of, but I don't mean with with nannies or babysitters or childcare, because that's certainly, well, a little bit, it's not horrible, but certainly if they're in school, you know, then I think it's fine for you to have an outside interest and to do these things. And uh, again, those those kind of things might be uh, very rewarding and very fulfilling. Um, so, you're not, uh, so did I answer the question? Is the question. You did answer the question, but should I feel wrong for, for stopping her from doing this great thing? Yes, you should feel wrong, because, but you're not asking the question. Of course you should feel wrong. But she's asking the question, so you don't have to feel wrong. Oh, right, right. so she's asking the question. So because she's answer, asking the question, the answer is, the right thing to do right now is for you to take care of your children. By the way, if you don't think I'm right, I want to share with you a very interesting little observation. Once upon a time, there was a woman named Sara Imenu. Sari Menu was the ultimate Kirov professional. Professional of professionals. What Avram did for the men, Sara did for the women. She was his equal. And thousands, apparently thousands upon thousands of Giorim they both uh, brought under the Kanfi Ashkina, brought to Hashem. Okay. What was Sara Menu's mission in life? 
Her mission in life was not to be a cure professional. Her mission in life was to be the mother of one child, and the mother of Yitzhak. And if you look in the Rishonim, Vayi Chayi Sora, and what was the life of Sora? And the Asikinim says, Vayi is the Gematria, and the Gematria of 37. 37 were the years of Sora's life. Why? Because it was only from 90 to 127 that she was accomplishing her mission in life. Her mission in life was to be the mother of Yitzhak, and those 37 years was the life of... Everything she did up to that was important, but it wasn't the essence of who she was. The essence of who she was was to be the mother of the Jewish nation, but the mother of the Jewish nation began with being the mother of one child, and that was her ultimate mission in life. So, for all of those people who think that being a mother is not a very important job, it's not really like Hashem, not like Kirov, I'd like to share with you that's patently false. Completely the opposite. Kirov begins with your children. And you bring them up as wholesome, happy, of the Hashem. And you bring them up to serve Hashem with joy. You bring them up as emotionally competent people. You are doing the greatest Kirov, the greatest accomplishment in the world. Your first priority are your kids. So in terms of whether you can be doing bigger things, uh-uh. This is bigger than big. This is exactly where it's at. You bring your kids up, give them the emotional support they need, and give them the time that they need. That's the greatest accomplishment you could do. Thank you, Rabbi. Amazing answer. Okay, good. All right. Okay. Okay, if you have questions, please feel free to raise your hand. Uh, just a observation. So we will be again on next week, next week, uh, Wednesday night at 8 p.m., uh, there will be a two-week break after that. Uh, I'll announce next week why, but there will be a two-week break after that, and we'll probably resume on Thursday. You'll get. Please look for the emails. Um, if you would like, there are many, many shurim on Tishabov. If you go to the shmuz.com or the shmuz app, just type in Tishabov, and you'll see many shurim, many, um, many of the various classes. A few that come to mind: number thirty-three, where was God during the Holocaust, and number thirty-four, there was one right after that. There's also number 44, Bar Kamsa, and Free Will. But again, if you just type in Tishabov, you'll see many, many, uh, many, many Shmuzim. The Shmuz app also has the search bar. You could search the podcast. I'm afraid to tell you it's much more difficult to use, but you should also be able to find stuff. And also, if you're not receiving the Shmuz, if you're not part of the Shmuz WhatsApp Chizit group, three, four times a week we send out these short inspirational videos. If you'd like to get them to your phone, just send a please subscribe to 845-216-9330. Again, that's 845-216-9330. And we'll put you on the Shmuz WhatsApp Chizik group. Again, you'll get three, four times a week, you'll get these short inspirational videos sent out. And you'll also be able to keep up with all the news of the various Shurim and etc. Okay, thank you very much for joining. And I hope you'll join next week, Wednesday at 8 p.m. Have a very good week. Thank you.